0: Stones from the Shepherd's Purse Chapter 2 Come, Stay, and Go As Christians, we often place enormous emphasis on the Great Commission, and rightfully so, as evangelism holds a high priority in the kingdom of God. However, before we consider the command to go, we would be wise to acknowledge two prior commands of Christ, the command to come and the command to stay. We will never properly go, if we don't first obey Jesus' commands to come and to stay. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me, and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he shall come in his own glory, and in his Fathers, and of the holy angels. Luke 9, 23-26 Here in Luke's Gospel we see the command to come, or to follow. Indeed, if we are to accurately represent Jesus Christ, he must be Lord, and he must be our Lord. We cannot compel men to embrace what we ourselves have neglected. If Jesus is not our Lord, we have absolutely no authority to press others into submission to a Master whom we, moment by moment, shun. To do so is to play into the religious deception and hypocrisy so common in this hour. Hundreds of thousands of Americans profess to be Christians, Amazingly, the claims of revival are varied and numerous. Reports of mass conversions are typical in our day, yet our nation continues in its moral freefall. Never, at least in my lifetime, has there been more hatred expressed for Jesus Christ and His Word than today. In the best of churches, evidence of spiritual compromise is abundant. From the pulpit to the pew, it appears a truce has been made with sin, the world, and the devil. Yet according to the latest polls, church attendance is up and all is considered well. Sadly, it is obvious there is a great discrepancy between our profession and our experience. I have come to understand that much of the church's problems can be traced to the quality of its beginnings. Many are simply not born of God. Unfortunately, there is a need to reacquaint ourselves with what it is meant in the Bible by the term salvation. Today, sinners are rarely made to see that they must surrender all to partake in the life of Jesus. Few seem to understand that Jesus cannot be Savior if he is not first submitted to as Lord. He must be Lord of all, or he will not be Lord at all. How might we define Lordship? The Greek word translated Lord in the New Testament means supreme in authority, controller, master, to rule to have dominion over, and to exercise lordship over. The Bible declares that the early church preached, not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4.5 We must understand, this preaching of Christ as Lord was more than mere words, but a demonstration of truth. They preached Him as Lord because He was their Lord. They declared the word of God because the word of God governed their lives. We can never encourage others to submit to Jesus if we ourselves reject his sovereign rule in our lives. Above all, those who make Jesus Lord esteem God's word. The Bible is God's marvelous book. Contained therein are all things that pertain to life and godliness. Those who are submitted to the living word must therefore be submitted to the written word. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. John 8 47 This is an absolute. Those who have made Jesus Lord honor, reverence, and declare God's word. Sadly, we live in an hour when the word of God is depreciated in the eyes of many professing Christians. The worldly wise sages of our times have replaced sound scriptural teaching with light antidotes, and psychobabble. Oh, that they would believe the psalmist who wrote, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Psalm 119, 160 Hence, the lordship of Christ is very practical and measurable. Obedience to the Bible Men who refuse, ignore, or otherwise disesteem God's word have not made Jesus their Lord. The application for the open-air preacher, before we can be agents of God's grace to see others born of God, we must be born again ourselves. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Romans 8:14. Moreover, those who have made Jesus Lord are sensitive to God's Spirit. The Lordship of Christ is practically realized in the life of the believer, by submission to the indwelling Spirit. When men fail to be led by the Spirit, it reveals that they have no genuine burden to follow Jesus. For to be led is essentially equivalent to following. To be led above everything requires conscious desire. If we desire to be led, we will be sensitive to the promptings of the Spirit. Quench not the Spirit. First Thessalonians 5.19 What is the meaning of the anointing of this holy spirit it is nothing less and nothing other than the holy spirit taking his place as absolute lord the anointing carries with it the absolute lordship of the holy spirit the spirit as lord that means that all other lordships have been deposed and set aside the lordship of our own lives the lordship of our own minds and our own wills our own desires the lordship of others the lordship of every interest and every influence is regarded as having given place to the undivided and unreserved lordship of the Holy Spirit, and the anointing can never be known, enjoyed, unless that has taken place. T. Austin Sparks. Now many mistake being led by the Spirit as something mystical, super-spiritual, and difficult to attain, but this is not so. If anyone can communicate. If anyone can make his mind to be known, certainly it is the Spirit of God. Any time men fail to know God's will, it's not because of a failure on God's part. No, the Holy Ghost is the master communicator, and those who have ears to hear will always hear His voice. In the wilderness, the children of Israel were provided a cloud by day and a fire by night. This is typical of the believer being led by the Spirit. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, from before the people. Exodus 13.22 This Old Testament example signifies many things, but primarily for our study, I want you to see that God's method of leading was unmistakable. The leadership of God was not obscure, ambiguous, or confusing, but readily apparent to all that were interested All that was necessary is that they see and follow. So it is with us. If Jesus is indeed our Lord, we are eager to be instructed by the ministry of God's Spirit. True saints, no matter how young, realize they are called to be soldiers, not merely spiritual consumers or parasites. They recognize the need for God's Spirit to confront, mold, shape, and discipline them into the vessel God intends. Hence, when men reject spiritual Christian correction or balk at spiritual light, it is a sure sign that Jesus is not their Lord. Those who have made Jesus Lord are followers of their Master. Like their Lord, they may have enemies, and they will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. They will understand the spiritual implications of separation and will rejoice to be a partaker in the sufferings of Christ. They will be mocked, misunderstood, and ridiculed. They will gladly embrace all those despised elements that distinguish the narrow way of holiness from the broad road of sinning religion. When this is absent, as it is in the lives of so many churchgoers, it reveals that Christ has not yet been crowned Lord. Let us examine ourselves. Let us ask ourselves the hard questions. Is Jesus indeed our Lord? For we can never compel men to come to a Christ we personally resist. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. Romans 14, 8-9 Having addressed Christ's command to come, we now consider his directive to stay. Notice his words in Luke 24:49, Tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. The baptism of the Holy Ghost is the heavenly equipping of power essential for effective ministry. No one is truly prepared to preach the gospel until they are baptized with the Holy Ghost. Consider what Jesus said in Acts 1, 8 but ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. The Greek word, du translated power, means force, especially miraculous ability. Indeed, the one spiritual characteristic that sets Pentecost apart is power. Now, power from on high is our most pressing need, and Pentecost's greatest promise. As Jesus proclaimed in John's Gospel, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. John 14:18. Power is the distinguishing mark of true Pentecost. Sweeping, enabling, invigorating, God-glorifying power. It provides divine power for service, praise, worship, prayer, preaching, and more. Indeed, it touches every aspect of the Christian life. This divine, Holy Ghost power is the difference between God's ability and man's ability. It enables and lifts us up into the heavenly realm where God and angels dwell. It is that which makes the crooked straight and the rough smooth. It bridges the gap between heaven and hell. People wonder, what's missing in our churches? What's missing in our preaching? The answer is plain. True, heaven-sent, fire-baptized, Pentecost— Show me a man or a church filled with the Holy Ghost, and I'll show you a man or a church that cannot help but display, express, speak, and yes, go. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. John 7.38. A running fountain cannot be contained. Let God's people be filled with God's Spirit, and they will be, and only then, equipped to declare the gospel. We were brought out to be brought in, apprehended to attain, redeemed to realize, and God intends for us to be utterly filled, so we may completely fulfill. Pentecost is God's answer to a vessel born of the Spirit, washed in the blood, and prepared for His glory. To be filled with the Spirit of the Lord is the church's appointed destiny. Now, a lack of overcoming power is always an indication of a grieved Holy Ghost. God has never been glorified by sin or defeat. This gospel is a message of victory, yet we will never realize the victory if we violate God's pattern for victory. If the 120 on the day of Pentecost had to be filled with the Holy Ghost, then we are arrogant in the extreme if we suppose we can assume otherwise for ourselves. Thus, if we are not baptized with the Holy Ghost, we are unfit to preach the gospel. Indeed, if we do not stay, we cannot go. We now look at Christ's command to go. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark 16:15. As the church, we have been given the great commission. It is here we are called to go and go we must. However, the question arises, what are we to do as we go? Obviously, we are to preach. Well, true enough, but what is it to preach? The Greek word, keruso, which is translated preach, means to herald as a public crier, to proclaim divine truth. Though the modern apostate church, careful never to offend, cautiously counsels us, Don't be preachy, just let your life provoke questions. It is clear, if we are to fulfill Christ's command, it will be necessary that we speak. In fact, if we fail to speak, God's mind will be obscured to our generation, a sobering and fearful prospect indeed. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? and how shall they hear without a preacher? Romans 10.14. For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 1 Corinthians 1.21. Oh yes, Nineveh must have her Jonah, Cornelius must have his Peter, and our community must have a public crier to denounce sin and point men to Christ. Hence, we are to speak, and we are to speak exclusively for God. Yet, for this commandment to be fulfilled, certain things must take place. It is more than a matter of repeating carefully crafted statements and phrases. We must truly possess the mind of God. We must have a timely word, not merely biblical facts, but the living word of God, relevant to the audience at hand. A word spoken in due season? How good is it! Proverbs 15, 23. In this hour of wholesale spiritual compromise, when preachers are often too afraid to address the moral issues that challenge the church, and evangelists too humanistic to warn sinners with God's word, let us consider the dynamics of some of the more subtle methods used by pulpiters to cloak their cowardice. We must remember a distinction should be made between biblical facts and the word of the Lord. The God-called preacher is obligated to give people not just facts from the scriptures, but the living word. By the living word, we mean the scriptural truth God desires to apply to that particular people at that given moment. When a preacher merely gives men Bible facts rather than the word of the Lord, then he is not fulfilling his moral obligation to speak as the oracles of God. Biblical facts are general while the word of the Lord is specific and often offensive. Moreover, scriptural truths are always biblical facts, but scriptural truths are not always the word of the Lord. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way, and from the evil of their doings. Jeremiah twenty three twenty one 21-22 As an illustration, consider the following analogy. Suppose, as I am traveling along the highway, I see a gentleman who is pulled over on the curbside, with his car's hood up, broken down with steam billowing from a ruptured radiator hose. As I pull up behind him and approach his vehicle to offer assistance, I reach in the back of my pickup truck and pull out a prize shovel. After greeting the man, I begin to very methodically expound on the virtues and multiple uses of my shovel. All the while, in nope, his immediate problem is ignored. Now, no matter how thorough and how accurate my discourse on the shovel has been, I have not addressed the problem at hand. Indeed, Everything I said is accurate, but it does my hearer little immediate good, as he has no urgent need for a shovel. I've given the man truth, but it I did not give him the truth he needed right now. He must he may say, but you did not lie. No, of course not. Again you may ask. Isn't what you said factual? Yes, but the help I offered did not confront the very issue that has sidelined this stranded traveler. I have given this unfortunate man some facts, but failed to give him the truth that will address and remedy his current condition. Likewise, all over America, men stand in pulpits and spew biblical facts, but refuse to give the people what they need, which is the word of the Lord so often this is the case with false teachers it is not so much what they say but that what they refuse to say that defines their error true they may not be propagating flagrant and outright lies but they are not allowing god for various reasons to speak directly to the issues at hand compromising preachers often inwardly attempt to soothe their inflamed conscience on this ground even though i avoid the controversy and persecution that accompanies confronting sin headlong, I still preach or teach orthodox doctrine. I have a sober warning for you, Mr. Snakewell. You may fool men, but you will never fool God. He called you as a mouthpiece, so he could declare the sin-exposing and life-giving truth to his people. Will you continue to get in his way? Men who are truly sent by God, give men the truth that makes free. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Romans 1, 14-15 No doubt we have a moral obligation to preach the gospel to our neighbor. Nevertheless, always remember, we are not called to convince men we love them, only to love them. There is a vast difference. Consider the ministry of John the Baptist whom God initially chose to introduce Israel to Jesus. Notice the introduction to the prophetic foretelling of his ministry by the prophet Isaiah. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Isaiah 41. John ministered to Israel in a day when she was sorely oppressed by the Roman Empire. It was a day of calamity, a day of spiritual decline, vexation and trouble. However, what was the comfort John preached to his troubled nation? O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham, and now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit, is hewn down and cast into the fire. Luke 3, 7-9 We do well to remember God's definition of comfort, and man's definition of comfort are vastly different. Moreover, notice how John boldly linked Israel's trouble with her moral failure. Generally speaking, the last thing men want to hear in times of trouble is reproof for their sins. Hence, it will always be unpopular to confront sinners with divine truth. When preaching the gospel to wicked men, my aim is to leave them with two distinct impressions. First, there is hope in Jesus. Second, there is absolutely no hope without him. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears uncircumcised, and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach, they have no delight in it. Jeremiah 6.10 Yet we must be like the prophet Ezekiel, who was told, whether they forbear or whether they hear, speak and tell them, thus saith the Lord, as God judges America for her sins. Will he find a mouthpiece to voice his truth? When thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Isaiah twenty six nine. CONSIDERING RECENT EVENTS IN OUR NATION, I BELIEVE GOD'S HAND IS REVEALED, BUT WILL HIS MOUTH SPEAK? INDEED, HE HAS A suitable ROD, BUT WILL HE FIND A HOLY MOUTHPIECE? BUT IF THE WATCHMEN SEE THE SWORD COME, AND BLOW NOT THE TRUMPET, AND THE PEOPLE BE NOT WARNED, IF THE SWORD COME AND TAKE ANY PERSON FROM AMONG THEM, HE IS TAKEN AWAY IN HIS INIQUITY, BUT HIS BLOOD WILL I REQUIRE AT THE watchman's HAND. Ezekiel 33, 6. May we, as faithful servants, obey Christ's command to come, stay, and then go.